Good morning again. I'm Brandon Barrett, <clears throat> lead pastor here at Grace Covenant. If you're visiting, welcome. We're glad that you're with us. Uh, we are in a series on the book of Revelation, so if you'd like to turn there to Revelation chapter 2, we're going to be looking at verses 12 through 17. Revelation is the last book in your Bible, and uh, you'll find that on page 1029 of our Pew Bibles. <clears throat> I ask you to be patient with me this morning. I'll be drinking lots of water. My kids spent a week being sick, and since we've taught them it's very important to share, they decided to pass that on to me, so I'm losing my voice, but we'll see if we can uh, hang in there for a little bit. If you're just joining us, we are looking at the first three chapters of the book of Revelation, at these seven letters that were sent by Jesus through his apostle John to these seven churches in Asia Minor. And we're looking at them because, like all of Scripture, we think there is something that is very important and very relevant for us as Christ addresses us through these letters as well. We're looking at these trying to hear and see what Jesus would say to us as we try to grow as a faithful church here in Williamsburg, Virginia. So let's pray together and we'll uh, go to the text. Let's pray. Father, we pray that you would open up your word to us right now. For it is your word. Some of us come in this morning and very confident of that. Others of us may be wondering or really seriously doubting it. Is it possible that you exist and that you have revealed yourself? Is it possible that when we read these ancient words, we are reading your living and active word to us now? If that's what you say that it is, would you instruct us? Would you teach us? Would you comfort us? Would you use your word to do its good fruit? I pray for... Uh, Many of us, as we come in here, are even just tired. You would give us the attention that we need. For we need you. And so it is in the name of Jesus that we pray, asking these things. Amen. Revelation chapter 2, verses 12 through 17. <clears throat> and to the angel of the church in Pergamum write, The words of him who has the sharp two-edged sword. I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is, yet you hold fast my name and you did not deny my faith even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was killed among you where Satan dwells. But I have a few things against you. You have some that hold to the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel so that they might eat food sanctified to idols and practice sexual immorality. So also you have some who hold to the teaching of the Nicolaitans, therefore repent. If not, I will come to you soon and war against them with the sword of my mouth. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will give some of the hidden manna, and I will give him a white stone with a new name written on the stone that no one knows except the one who receives it. This is the word of the Lord, and it's given to us for our good and for His glory. So to it we turn now. <clears throat> Here's the point of what we're going to see this morning. All of these letters to these various churches address a variety of issues. Here's what we're going to look at this morning and how it relates to us. The fact that being a faithful church, for us to be a faithful church, means that we're to be a church community that is formed around truth, around God's truth around the truth of Scripture. And we're going to see here in in this passage two aspects of this truth to which we are called. First, we're going to see that we are called to be committed to the truth of who Christ is. 
the truth of who Christ is. And secondly, we're going to see that we're called to be committed to the truth of how we are to live as followers of Christ. Those two things, the truth of who Christ is and the truth of what it means for us to live faithful lives following him. And then we're going to see in where the passage does, thirdly, with uh, what we see here about the power that God gives us to live in this truth. Okay, so first, called to be, we're called to be committed to the truth of who Christ is. We see this in verses 12 and 13 as this letter opens up, this letter addressed to this uh, ancient church, this ancient city of Pergamum. Now, there are a couple things that stand out about Pergamum in this uh, day and time. There were a couple things that it was known for. One is that Pergamum was known as a place of learning. Uh, it had uh, a very famous library, which at the time was said to have had 200,000 volumes, which made it one of the most elaborate, large, and spectacular libraries in all of the ancient world. In fact, it was said to rival uh, the uh, library of the ancient world, the one in Alexandria in Egypt. In fact, it had gained such prominence. There was a time in Egypt when uh, there was a shortage of papyrus where people would, the, the, they would use to uh, make the scrolls for their books. And uh, so they stopped exporting the papyrus, especially to the city of Pergamum, their rival in the world of learning. And so instead, the people in Pergamum invented parchment to write on instead. And our word parchment comes, is derived from the name of uh, Pergamum. It, it was a place of great learning and renown in the world. And the second thing it was known for, it was a place of absolute pagan domination. Uh, it was a center in its area of Asia Minor for uh, the Roman emperor cult, the worship of the emperor. It had a, a prominent, enormous temple to Zeus. It had temples to other gods, as uh, any town would. But listen to how Jesus evaluates their town. Listen to what he says about it. Jesus says that, I know that this town is the throne of Satan. And that you live where Satan dwells. They live in a very dark place. And therefore, it was a place of intense pressure and testing for the Christians who lived there. There would have been strong temptation for them to abandon their faith or to accommodate themselves to the culture that was surrounding them. In particular, the emperor worship that took place would have directly challenged their foundational beliefs as Christians. Uh, because the foundational statement for any good Roman citizen and in the, Roman, uh, the, the cult of the Roman emperor was this, the affirmation that Caesar is Lord. But for these Christians, they were called to hold fast to the name of Christ and proclaim instead that Jesus is Lord. Well, how did they respond? How did they deal with this pressure that was given them in Pergamum? How did they respond to these most basic challenges of their faith? Look at what Jesus says in verse 13 about them. He says, in spite of all this, I know where you live, where Satan dwells. I know the intense pressure that surrounds you. He says this, yet you hold fast my name. In spite of this pressure, they have a firm grip on the name of Jesus, the truth of who Jesus is. They know and declare that Jesus, not Caesar, is Lord. And holding fast to that affirmation, to that truth of who Christ is, would have cost them. It likely would have cost them socially and professionally, and it ran the risk of costing their very lives. You notice here that Jesus pauses to remember Antipas, whom he calls his faithful witness who was killed because he held fast to Jesus' name. Now, this is the only place in Scripture where Antipas is mentioned. We don't know exactly what 
He went through, the, there were church legends that sprang up afterwards about the torture that he went through because he would not name the name of Caesar as Lord. But Jesus pauses here and says, you've known pressure this intense that there are those in your midst who died because they would not forsake the name of Jesus. And so this letter to Pergamum opens with this strong encouragement and affirmation of their commitment to the truth of who Jesus is, that he is the Son of God, that he is Lord, that he is Savior. And we also are called to this same commitment. We're called to be committed to, to holding fast to the name of Jesus. Now, in some places in this world still, uh, that commitment can lead to death. If you were to look on one of the last few pages of your bulletin, you'd see these prayers that we have every, there, uh, every week there that come from the persecuted church around the world. And there are people who lose their lives because they hold fast to the truth of who Christ is. But in our time and place in, here in Williamsburg, the challenges to holding fast to Jesus' name uh, are, are usually more subtle than that, but significant nonetheless. Maybe it's this on campus. There's the academic assumption that we can understand the world and we can understand humanity without any reference to God at all. The religious beliefs are private and compartmentalized and you cannot bring them into your scholarship in any meaningful way. Or the prevailing cultural view that truth is an individual concept. You can believe what you like, but uh, don't try to tell me that my beliefs are wrong. And that might be as simple as uh, a part of speech, as simple as an article like this. Christianity is a way to God versus Christianity is the way to God. See, holding fast to Christ's name, the truth of who he is, might not cost us our lives and our culture, but it may cost us well in other ways. It might cost us the A. might cost us the promotion. It might cost us socially. It might even open us to misunderstanding or disdain from friends or professors or neighbors or maybe from even members of our own families. The Christians at Pergamum are affirmed because they hold fast to Jesus' name. And we are called to the same thing in our day and age as well. But there is a second call in this passage too. Not only are we called to be committed to the truth of who Christ is, secondly, we're called to be committed to the truth of how we are to live in response to this Christ. How we are to live with lives that are integrated and organized around the person of Jesus we see this in verses 14 through 16, and this is where the letter takes its turn, because this is where Jesus turns to this church and says, let me affirm this thing, but let me tell you, there are things that we need to talk about. I have a beef with you, and here it is. He says this, uh, that he, he says, I have a few things against you, and he points to a couple things uh, culturally very far removed from us. He says, I, one of the things that I criticize you for, he says, you have those in your church who hold to the teaching of Balaam, who influenced Balak into the Nicolaitans. Um, and when, what he's talking about here is he's bringing up an Old Testament story uh, that comes from the book of Numbers in chapters 22 through 25. And I think the best way for us to get a sense of, of, of that is for us to turn there and, and read all those chapters in their entirety. Yeah, I'm just kidding. We're not going to do that. <clears throat> Let me sum up. 
Uh, the people of Israel, they, are, they have uh, come out of Egypt. They've gone through 40 years in the desert, and they are on the verge of, of crossing over into the promised land. And the Moabites, one of the groups of people who live there, see them and know that they are a threat. They've come to conquer the land, and so they want to defeat the Israelites. And so Balak, the king of Moab, hires this guy Balaam, who is this kind of freelance prophet, magician, diviner guy. And um, he, they hire him to come and curse Israel so that, they, so that Moab can be victorious in battle. And he comes, and every time he attempts to curse uh, Israel, instead, blessing comes out of his mouth because he says, as he says to Balak, it's not my fault. The Lord has proclaimed blessing on them and not cursing. Uh, Balak, understandably, doesn't feel like he's gotten what he's paid for. I paid for a cursing. We're getting a blessing. But as we read later in Numbers, and this is what uh, Jesus refers to here in this letter, one of the things that Balak did do is he advised Balak and said, Balaam did advise Balak and said, look, uh, I can't curse them, but if you are able to convince these people to intermarry with your people and to take on your gods, they will be entirely neutralized as a threat against you. And that begins to happen. Some of the Israelites begin to uh, intermingle with the Moabites. They begin to follow their gods. And God brings, in, re in uh, response, he brings a plague on the people of Israel to stop this because it so threatened who they were as the people of God. And so Jesus brings this up in the letter, and he says, there are people even among you in its New Testament uh, manifestation, these followers of Nicholas, we don't know who he is, the Nicolaitans, but they, he apparently taught something similar that uh, was leading people, as it said here, into sexual immorality and into eating food sacrificed to idols. Now, we're going to talk about those two issues in particular more next week because they come up for the church we're going to look at next week, the church in Thyatira. So we're going to talk about those in particular more uh, next week. But let, let me just point out a co the commonality of these two things for right now. That both of these things, this uh, pursuing after sexual immorality and these, this partaking of these idol feasts and eating food sacrificed to idols, uh, they both had in common a sense that ultimately our bodies don't matter. That what we do with our bodies don't matter. Because after all, we're spiritual beings. We're just trapped in this uh, physical prison that one day we want to be liberated from. And you see, that kind of teaching runs directly counter to Scripture, which says that we are, in fact, embodied souls. That we are people who are spiritual and physical intertwined, and that that is a good thing. It is such a good thing that one day when Christ returns, he's going to give us a resurrected body that is the way it is meant to be. That is fundamental to the Christian view of who we are as people. And these people were teaching something counter to that. And he criticizes the church because he says for two things. He says, look, some of you are buying into this kind of teaching and are being led astray by the world around you. And the rest of you, the church, you're putting up with this. You're letting it thrive in your church. You're not being discerning. You are not standing for what is true. See, uh, the overarching issue that he is bringing up here for them is that they are being influenced by uh, aspects of the world around them rather than being committed to the truth of how they are to live as followers of Christ, as Christians. See, when it came to orthodox belief about who Jesus is, then they got uh, all good marks. They were committed to the truth of Christ, and they were willing to suffer and even die for that truth. But when it came to these issues of how to live a life that's holy and glorifying to God, they were taking their cues in many ways from their culture around them rather than from Christ. And Jesus comes and says, this is incredibly serious and destructive for you. 
John Stott puts it this way, here is a pitched battle that was being fought in which the soldiers were not men but ideas. And the church is being led astray by these false ideas. Now that brings up questions about how are we to think about culture around us? How are we to interact with it? I mean, here Jesus points out a couple very specific ways in which they had taken a cultural uh, understanding of sexuality and idolatry and they had taken it in for themselves. And Jesus is critical of that. But there is nuance in the way the Bible talks to us about how we are to respond to culture and how we're to interact with it. Because Jesus, he puts his finger on these couple things, he, and he knows exactly what they are going through. He knows exactly how dark their city is, a city where Satan dwells. But here's what he doesn't say. He doesn't say, and so the best thing for you is to pick up and move someplace safer. He doesn't say, leave this culture. He doesn't say, circle the wagons and keep the culture at bay Why? Because he knows how enslaved and dark this world is and because he cares about it. Because the general picture we get in scripture about our interaction with the world is not withdrawal from the world but a right engaging of the world where we find ourselves. You may have heard it phrased this way that we are to be in the world but not of it. And that comes from Jesus' high priestly prayer in John chapter 17 the night before he's Killed when he prays for his disciples and for us who would come after them. And he said this as he prays, I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them by the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. Do you hear what he's saying? Saying, God, I'm Father, I'm praying that you will protect my people as they are called to be salt and light in this world. Not that you would take them out of it, not that you would separate them, but that they would be able to fulfill their mission to come and bring life and light and hope to a dark world around them. Paul takes this up in 1 Corinthians chapter 5. Paul has written a previous letter, apparently, to the Corinthians. And said something to them about the influence of sexual immorality in their own church. And there are some in the church who have apparently taken that to mean we need to withdraw from the world. So here's what he says to them. I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people. Not at all meaning the sexually immoral of this world or the greedy and swindlers or idolaters. Since then you would need to go out of the world. But I am now writing you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother if he is guilty of sexual immorality or greed or an idolater, a reviler, a drunkard, or a swindler, not even to eat with such a one. Do you see his correction here, his correction to them? He says, I'm not saying reject the world around you and pull out and don't try to be an influence there. He said, this stuff has come into the heart of the church and that is what you are to turn away from. That is the error that you're to address. Because the Bible is both realistic and missional. It's realistic. The world is caught in sin. And so, of course, we're going to see that sin expressed in different ways in our culture. And there is no sinless culture to which we can flee. And if we found one and went there, we would spoil it for them. (laughs) You know, Alexander Solzhenitsyn said the dividing line 
of good and evil runs right down the heart of every man. That we, even as believers, are people who are still struggling with sin. There is no perfect place for us to go. The Bible is realistic about that. In fact, that is why Christ came. That's not something on the side or deterrent from the mission. That is the mission. That he came to rescue us and to save a broken, sinful dark and fallen world. See, it's not only realistic, it's missional that we are sent as a church, as God's people into the world to bring the hope and the healing of the gospel with us as we go. Now, what about us? Uh, we're, we're talking about the issue for Pergamum was that they had these incredible blind spots in a couple of particular areas where they did not see that they were being more influenced by the world than they were by God's word and its truth. What about us? Where are our blind spots that Jesus would address in our lives? Where are we conforming to the lies of the world around us rather than to the truth? Because the Bible's assumption is that we all have cultural blinders. And we are all in need of the truth of the gospel to bring correction and to bring sight to us. So the question for us, what is our our blindness? Where does the gospel need to penetrate more deeply for us? Um, I hope this week in your small groups that this will provide some good conversation, and you may come up with many, but let's uh, think for a moment about just two places of perhaps cultural blindness for us. One is in the area of achievement, of achievement, and the way that is held high in our world. Are you listening to the world around us rather than to Scripture in the way you think about achievement? Do you believe at some level that you must Make a name for yourself. Or do you believe that you that what you do that you excuse me, do you believe that what you are is directly tied to what you do and what you earn? Friday night, Elizabeth and I went to see uh, the movie The Social Network, uh, which many of you may have seen. It's about uh, Mark Zuckerberg, the, the founder of Facebook. 2003, when he was a sophomore at Harvard, how he uh, came up with this idea of Facebook in conjunction with other people, started this thing that is taking over the world. And the movie is about the, the birth of Facebook, but also the incredible strife and dissension that came as those who were part of creating it were soon at each other's throats. And one of the things that stood out in this movie is the overriding drive of all of the characters for success, for recognition, for achievement, for making a name for themselves. There's one scene in which uh, Sean Parker, who's the creator of Napster, is in a conversation uh, with Mark Zuckerberg, the, the creator of, of Facebook here. And, and he tells, uh, Sean tells Mark about what motivated him as a high school student to create Napster. He said that in high school, uh, there was a girl that he liked that uh, f- instead of falling for him, fell for one of the football players on the football team. And he said that as he saw that, that he vowed to himself that he was going to do something big to show that he was somebody. And in his own words, what he decided to do was to take down the music industry. And in many ways, he did. What is it that you look to to accomplish for yourself? Um, How about this? Is, Is your GPA the measure of your worth? Or your success or lack of it in raising your children, is that the final verdict on your life? Or do you find yourself, how about this, do you find yourself more at ease when you're around a group of people who you perceive to be less successful than you are, 
than you, than you feel when you're around a group of people who are more successful than you are. Or maybe it hits you in, an, in exactly the opposite way. You find yourself uh, distancing yourself from people who are less successful than you are. And instead, you find yourself relationally investing in relationships and people who are more successful than you are and who might be able to provide something for you along the way. And would Jesus say to us, but I have a few things against you. You sacrifice to the idol of achievement. Or uh, what about this, achievement or comfort? Now, when I mention comfort, I'm, I'm not talking about um, the, the comfort that we receive from the Holy Spirit, for example, in our struggles, in our difficulty, the comfort that we rightly give each other in times of mourning and struggle, but the longer form of it, the comfortable, the comfortableness. I, I love this word and everything it represents. Comfort food. Com there's a comfort in. <laughs> comfortable shoes, a comfortable bed, a comfortable life. Love to be comfortable. But where did we get the idea that God wants us to be comfortable? Where do we read that in the Bible? Joyful? Yes. Thankful? Yes. Encouraged? Yeah. Self-sacrificing? Yes. Worshipful? Devoted? Yes. Comfortable? No. It's not there. In fact, could it be that in a world that is filled with war and strife and hunger and oppression, with darkness and sin, a world dying and in need of a Savior, could it be that maybe we should be profoundly uncomfortable in this life? That that would be the correct stance for our hearts. You notice here in this passage that in a couple of places Jesus uses wartime imagery. He talks about the sword that comes out of his mouth, which he will use in judgment. He speaks to his faithful followers at the end and talks about conquering. There's war imagery throughout Revelation. There's war imagery throughout Scripture. Because the Bible presents to us that we actually live in the middle of a spiritual war. That that's what's going on all around us and through history. It teaches us that there is in fact evil. And it is opposed to God. It teaches us, even as is mentioned here, that there is a personal evil, that there is one known as Satan who is opposed to God and all that he stands for. This is not some sort of dualistic, this, there's good and evil in balance, which is going to win. It's very clear in Scripture that Satan and evil is a created thing and that God is all-powerful and that he will win this battle. In fact, he has won the decisive victory at the cross where Satan's back was broken and where his end was made assured. But we also read in Scripture that Satan is still alive and he's still thrashing. And even as believers in Christ, we see the power of sin at work in our own lives. We see it tearing our world apart because Jesus has not come back. You see, he's won the decisive victory, but he has not come back to finish, to wipe everything away, to bring a restoration of all that is good and true. Here's a way of putting it that maybe an illustration maybe you've heard before. It's like in World War II. <clears throat> Something that was unclear to the people at the time, but is clear now in, uh, with the perspective of history looking back, that the war in, in principle was won on D-Day. When the back of the enemy was broken, 
And that was the decisive victory that, that led to the winning of the war. But there was this long period of time between D-Day and V-Day, between D-Day and Victory Day, when peace was finally fully established. You, that is the tension that we live in now, too. That what happened at the cross was D-Day, and Victory Day is coming. But we live in the middle of a real war still. And all those soldiers who made it up the beach in D-Day and into the interior of France still had real bullets that were being shot at them. The Bible says we are in the middle of a spiritual war. And in the middle of war, it is not a time for us to bank our hope on comfort. Because that is not where we are. See, we are not called now to live comfortably because the war is still on. Now, how is God maybe calling us beyond our addiction to comfort? Let me give you a couple thoughts. This one from my life. What if, what if God's intention for our home life is not primarily that it be comfortable? And here in my case, what if sharing a home with four sinners under the age, you know, age six and under, was never designed to be a comfortable thing. And what if for my children, sharing a home with two sinners who are much older and much more skilled in sinning than they are <laughs> was not a comfortable thing, that it was uh, not meant for our comfort. Maybe it means that God has bigger dreams for us than our comfort, like sharing a home that is filled with grace and forgiveness and godliness and patience, and kindness, none of which is born out of comfort. Or maybe uh, in your marriage, Gary Thomas, in a book called The Sacred Marriage, says this, what if God designed marriage to make us holy more than to make us happy? What if our retirement isn't to be about our well-deserved or well-earned rest, but about new opportunities that God has given us to serve God and others in ways that you were just never free to do in the past? What if God has helped you launch your youngest child out into the world as an adult now, not so that you would be uh, an empty nester, but instead so that you can see that there is a room full of infants right down the hall in the nursery uh, waiting for you to come and to love and to serve them, or a third grade Sunday school class, or the middle middle school girls small group, or a host of other ways that he might be calling you to come and to love and to serve. What if God's preparing you as a college student for a career, not so that you can make a name for yourself and make a good living, sorry, not so that you can have a comfortable life, but instead so that you can serve God and serve the world in the sphere of work to which he's calling you? What if he has higher aspirations for your field of work and your career than you do for yourselves? What if the Bible says that we are God's children loved and brought into a family, not so that we could live comfortable lives in this world, but so that we could serve and love him and serve and love our neighbor? What if that's what we're to be all about? And you see, like the church in Pergamum, we are susceptible to the lies of the world around us too. Where are we blind? Where are we missing what God has for us? And would he take the blinders off? So he's calling this church and he's calling our church to be committed to the truth of of who Christ is, that we stand firm on that, and to be committed to the truth of what it means for us to live biblically, godly, holy lives in this world. We're to hold those two things. Now, where are we going to get the strength for that? 
We see in the third thing here, the power to live in this truth. We see in uh, verse 17 and, and throughout the passage, there are four things that we see here that God has given us to help us live in the truth. Let me list them and then I'll just briefly comment on them. He's given us his gaze, his sword, a white stone, and hidden manna. Those four things. First, he's given us his gaze. Remember what he said in the very beginning. I know where you dwell. I know how dark it is in the place that you live. I know how dark it is in the place where you work. I know how dark it is in pockets of the life at school where you go. I know how dark it is for some folks in the midst of your very own family life. He says, I know. I see it. And I am with you. Jesus says you do not have to be magically taken to some other place for you to experience and know his grace. He doesn't tell the people in Pergamum to move. And he comes to us as well and says, I know the dark places of your life as well. But I am here. I am here. And it is possible to keep your eyes on me, to know my care, and to be faithful where you are right now. He knows the challenges and pressures of your work, of raising your kids. He knows the loneliness and struggle that you may be feeling as a single person. He knows the loneliness and and struggle you may be feeling as a married person. There is nowhere in life that we can be that God is not there. I know where you dwell. So we are given his gaze. Secondly, we're given his sword. It's mentioned in verse 12 and 16, this sharp two-edged sword. This picture coming from the mouth of Jesus. Why? Because it represents his powerful word that comes to do its work in our lives. John Stott says this about this powerful word, the power of Scripture. He says, The only weapon which can slay the forces of error is the word of Christ. The Bible pricks the conscience and wounds the pride of sinners. It cuts away our camouflage and pierces our defenses. It lays bare our sin and need and kills all false doctrine by its deft, sharp thrusts. Hebrews chapter 4 talks about the word of God being like a sword. It says this, For the word of God is living and active, sharper in fact than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirit, joints and marrow, discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. In the book of Revelation here, We get a glimpse of it, and later in the book of Revelation, this sword is talked about as an instrument of judgment that will come in the end as Christ yields his sword of truth in judgment on the world. But right now, that hand is still stayed, and that sword comes to cut through error and sin and blindness so we can know the truth and be healed by it. How are we going to stand in truth? We're given his gaze and his sword We're given a white stone on which is written a name that no one else knows. There are a million different ways this has been interpreted. If you were to go and read any of the commentaries, which I feel gives me great latitude in application. (laughs) Let me say, whether, whether that sparked a particular cultural artifact for them. There's some that think white stones were given as an admission token to get into certain things. There are a lot of different options of what they think it literally could have sparked in their minds. Whatever that is, here in, in context here, um, I think what we're seeing is, well, this. What is going to free us from being enslaved by the lie of achievement? 
and the lie that we must make a name for ourselves. You see, in a world that is bent on achievement and making a name for ourselves, we are told here that in Christ we are going to be given a name, a true name known by God and known by us. I think what we have here is a picture of the intimacy of relationship with Christ. That we come to him as his people, but we are also known by him individually. He comes and he says, I'm going to give you this white stone with a name written on it. And maybe that name is a new name for us. Maybe we are in that moment given a name that really captures all that we are and were meant to be. That really speaks to how deeply and intimately our God knows and loves us. So he says to us in the middle of a world bent on achievement, he says, there is a name, and I have it, and it is coming, and I will give it to you one day. Your name is safe with me. Or maybe what we need most to hear this morning is not just his gaze or his sword or a white stone, but the fourth thing we're given here, we're given hidden manna. In the Old Testament, when Israel was wandering in the desert, After they left Egypt for 40 years, God fed them daily with this uh, mysterious bread from heaven that they called manna. That picture of God feeding his people in the wilderness is picked up in the New Testament in one place in John chapter 6 after Jesus has fed 5,000 people out in the wilderness. And he says these shocking words to them. The bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger. Whoever believes in me shall never thirst. You hear Jesus says, I am the bread. I am the hidden manna. I am the thing that is going to come and sustain your soul. What is going to free us from our addiction to the lie of comfort? From a fruitless life spent pampering and deadening ourselves. What's going to empower us instead to live a life that's dominated by the calling and vision of God to love God with all our heart and mind and soul and strength, to love our neighbor as ourselves, a life spent in service to God and to others? What is going to give us the strength to do that? Only this, if we find ourselves in each and every moment sustained by Christ himself. If we remember that though we are not called to be comfortable and though we are in the midst of battle, that we are sustained by the manna of Christ himself, that he will come and meet our daily needs, that he will show up, that he will provide. And that piece of us that longs for rest, that longs for the war to be finished, he reminds us that that day is coming, that Christ is returning. And on that day, we will be given the hidden manna as well. We will finally experience what we long for now, which is that rest and that completeness. The war will be over. And we must know and bank on the fact that when that day comes, that we will have Christ and all his provision for us. And because that day is guaranteed and coming, then we can survive and even flourish in the middle of a very real spiritual war that often leads us well beyond our comfort so that we can be a part of God's work of loving this world, of bringing the hope of the gospel to the world around us. As we are called together as a church, be a church that's committed to the truth, 
the truth of who Christ is, the truth of what it means for us to live lives in light of Christ and what he calls us to in a church that is empowered by these resources that God gives us, his gaze, his sword, a white stone and hidden manna for us, his church, his people. Let's pray. Father, we pray that you would, in fact, sustain us and nourish us and strengthen us, that you would give us courage and strength to stand where we must stand to hold fast to your name, that you would give us discernment to see the ways that we take in things in the world around us that would poison us. And Father, we pray that you'd give us the nuance to live in our culture that you call us to, that we might not withdraw in big ways or small, but instead that we might love a fallen world around us because you so loved the world that you gave your only son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. And you have brought us that life in this dark world. May we be a part of your work of bringing that life to others as well, that your name may be held high. And we ask this in the name of Jesus. Amen.